Hey everyone, this is Jim coming to you from the shelter in place during the coronavirus pandemic of spring of 2020. Uh, let's see what's going on. Yeah, so yesterday the San Francisco mayor, Mayor Breed, announced that they're probably going to extend the shelter in place uh, from you know, beyond May 3rd, which is I think about a week away now, maybe two weeks Anyway, it's probably going to go on for at least the rest of May. Um, so more, more of this, more of the same. Doing okay with it so far. How are you all doing? I thought I would turn this on. I, I, I keep thinking I want to turn this on and start recording myself talking about this or that. And I catch myself thinking, well, nobody wants to hear you talk about that. Why, why are you? And I, of course, I have to remind myself, I have to overcome that gut reaction and say, look, nobody is listening to this. You don't have to, it doesn't matter. You're doing it to talk, not to like entertain anyone. That's the beautiful thing about it. Um, I've been, it's been sunny the last few days. I've just been out on my terrace, uh, soaking up as much sun as I can, letting it just fry my brain. Uh, going out there and just, early in the morning, meditating. And by that, I mean just kind of dozing off. You're just half asleep in the sun. Uh, yeah, just yeah, soaking up that wonderful vitamin D. It has been great. Um, I finally uh, pulled out the drone yesterday, and I sent that off down the street just in front of my place towards the water past uh the giant stadium and uh yeah i got some footage uh it's pretty hard to con like it's very very windy in san francisco and there's a lot of radio interference it's it's pretty difficult to control i managed to get maybe seven or eight minutes of it just flying around my area of the city that's some pretty good pretty good aerial footage but i'm probably not going to do that again Trying to bring it back in is tricky. Like it's windy, so you're trying to bring it back in, and you're trying to have it not hit any obstacle. And I, you know, typically it's it's very very easy to land the thing. You just bring it down over the ground, and then you can swipe a little thing on the control uh, panel on the remote, and it just you know brings itself down to the ground gracefully and turns off. Uh, the wind was so bad, it just I, I just got it over like level ground and uh yeah just just let it drop and ended up inverting itself and like onto its went upside down so crash landing not graceful but you know it was a good way of spending the time i took my um one of my little deck chairs out and just put it right on the edge of the ledge uh so i have i have kind of like a, a like a dirt bed uh it's raised about three feet off the ground. It's about five feet wide. And that separates my patio from basically looking down at the, at the street below me. So I was right on the edge of that thing, like on the street side, just sitting in a chair with the remote flying the, flying the little drone around. Yeah. Trying to figure out, uh, probably I'll edit that together, take that footage and throw it online at some point, but yeah, I haven't, I haven't quite gotten to that yet. Um, yeah, but I was sitting around thinking, 
just thinking about a lot of stuff this morning. Uh, so I thought I would just get it out of my head, which I have to do in order to move on with my life. I just have to conceive that I, uh, my feelings, not my feelings, my thoughts just have to be documented somewhere. Because if they're not, they'll just stay in my head and keep repeating themselves like they're insisting that I get them out. I don't know why my brain does that, but I, I kind of, I can't, I can't ignore it. That doesn't work. I just end up retreading the same ground over and over again. I was thinking about uh, movies. And I, in particular, like the internet. Uh, just because I've been going online more than I usually do, browsing the Twitter and the tweets and soaking them up. And I've seen a lot of comments about people saying, like, I just watched this movie and I hated it. If you find clips of movies on YouTube, like, you go, well, you want to go watch a scene from a movie. There's inevitably people in the comments uh, disparaging it. And I kind of, I don't know why human beings have this tendency towards basically movies, and I, I suppose other art forms, but anything that is popular culture, like movies are one example, um, TV shows, any sort of like visual like a YouTube video, for example, somebody makes a short and posts it online. I don't know why these attract such vitriolic criticism. And the analogy I was kind of drawing to make it really put it in perspective for me, like I thought, yeah, this is really nonsensical, is that uh, let's say you live in a city with lots of parks, and I live in San Francisco, so I happen to I happen to have a lot of, there's a lot of parks in the city. San Francisco very early on committed itself to setting aside a lot of land for parks, like making a point of allocating green space. And there's not a, there's not a ton of it. Um, Golden Gate Park is the notable exception. They, they, they really allocated a ton of land for that. And that is just massive. A coworker of mine told me, I was looking to move over towards that side of the city so as to be closer to Golden Gate Park, but for other reasons. And a coworker told me, like, yeah, you could just, you could live by that place for years and go into it every weekend, and you, you wouldn't cover all the ground. It's just, you, you can go in there and almost get lost. You know, if you just couldn't hear the noise, like, you could, there's just parts of it that are very woodsy, it's very dense. Ah, it's beautiful. But, uh, of course, um, every park has a designer. There were a couple of people who designed Golden Gate Park back in, um, in the 1860s, 1870s, when the project was coming together. And they were the designers who originally had a hand in developing Central Park in New York a few, uh, a few years earlier. So they were brought out west to do the same thing, build a central park in, in San Francisco, sort of plan out the vegetation, whatever structures would be in there. 
And so, I mean, all the parks have been designed by somebody, somebody in, in whatever past for recreation and parks throughout history. And them now, there's always somebody who says, here's, here's how we're going to put this park together. So I, tr- I try to imagine, like, you go into a park and you really like it. So you go back there. It's like your favorite one. And let's say you go to another one and it's not as good as the one that you like. Matter of fact, there's elements of it that you really don't like. It's just, it just doesn't suit you. You don't like the way it's put together. Just coming away from that whole experience and saying like, that park was terrible. I hated it. Whoever designed that really should not be allowed to make parks ever again. Like they should just stop trying because they're, they're never going to get there. This to me is what it kind of sounds like if somebody's going out of their way to post online, like how much they didn't like this or that movie. Like I, I've seen movies that I don't like. I've seen movies that I think are downright terrible and they, they, they clearly whoever was making them did not have the requisite skills to bring a film together or to write it or so the, the, the players had no business acting uh, in the film. Some element of it just doesn't work, if not all the elements. And it, it's just kind of like, okay, that's in one ear and out the other. That, that doesn't stick in my mind. I don't feel the need to go on a, on a tirade publicly about just how terrible this thing is. But people do this about movies. Like there's, there's virtually nothing else in our world. Where, where people are doing that. They're, they're going out of their way to, to comment on what it is they don't like instead of just go find a park that you do like, go find the one that you do like and just, uh, you know, enjoy it. There was a movie I saw several times last fall. I'll come back to that. But the sixth time I saw it in the theater, like there was somebody sitting right behind me who he did not like the film. And he was just commenting the whole time about how incredibly stupid he thought it was. Like, how could anybody like this? This is dumb. He, he was clearly angry. His girlfriend was sitting next to him trying to like, trying to appease him. Trying to be like, look, I, I'm supportive of your opinion. I hear you like acknowledging what he's saying, but doesn't want to positively reinforce this sort of negative behavior. So just non-committally treading the ground between I hear you and please shut your mouth. If not, if not, if not for my sake, then for the sake of everyone else around you, what do you have to prove here? Kind of got that vibe from the way she was, she's trying to be delicate. Yeah. Reason number, I don't know how many, like 78 on the list of why I would not want to be a woman just because you have to deal with that from men. Men are always so assertive. They have to assert themselves whether or not they're correct, whether or not it even makes sense to assert yourself. You just have to like, okay, I support you. But this, this is, you know, this is akin to going into a park where there are a bunch of people playing, like kids playing, just like start yelling, this place sucks. This is terrible. Why are you all enjoying this? This is so like the grass. It's the wrong kind of grass. The the play equipment is in the wrong place. It's not even the right kind. There's no tire swing. 
just it's odd it's odd to have that sort of psychology towards things just the animosity but i don't know i, I can i can certainly I, can, I think i've been there before i think at some point i'm old enough now that like any criticism i make of people who are doing things it's it's on some level, it's the pot and the kettle. I was 22, 23 at some point. And I was, you know, I had very strong opinions about the world and I had to, uh, you know, assert them just my way. I had to like make a scene, try and get attention. And sometimes that involves, uh, you know, taking a stance against something. I guess that's how people, people can define their identities by what they really don't like or outright hate there's a kind of self-definition in that it's not the most productive one but it i think it i think it can work when you're young and you're still figuring yourself out you're just trying to draw an outline figure out where the the peripheral is uh, between you and the rest of the world and you just you do that long enough eventually the the shape it forms you think okay that's that's a starting point for who I might actually be. I, I definitely think I did quite a bit of that. Yeah, it works. It works, but it's, it's odd that we, that we do that. Um, instead of just moving on to the next thing. I don't like this. I'll go find something else. And I don't know. It's, I've always kind of had that that sense, like even when I was young and decrying things, like there were there were things that I liked that I knew were just objectively bad because they they meant something to me, and so it really didn't matter to me if they were good or bad. There's there's still many things that I encounter, like works of art, movies, TV shows, and I know they're they're not good. But you, you can just step back and look at them outside of your own head, just with a broader perspective. You're like, this is objectively, there, there are objective problems with this. There are things that definitely make it imperfect. There are, there are plot holes. And I, I just, yeah, I don't, uh, it doesn't really matter though. I, I think it, it's kind of, I think it's an, it's an unproductive way to live because if you're just looking, if you're just looking at the story itself and saying, this is objectively terrible. And so I'm going to adopt that mindset. If you go into that, like analyzing everything, like it becomes much harder to appreciate a film. If you go see a movie in the theater, it's hard to just enjoy it as what it is. If you're, if you're scrutinizing, how well it's done. Especially if you're looking for things that are done incorrectly. And I don't think that's usually what happens. I think people, it's very easy to watch a film that is very well made and it has no errors in the craft. You just, you don't notice the mistakes. You, you tend to notice the mistakes. They stick out. When something is poorly done, it just, it screams in your face. It's much easier to notice than when something is done well. 
and it's a, it's a double-edged sword because it 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 kind of inhibits you from just appreciating the story. At least, at least it can. I'm sure people who are film what what is it? You study film, your filmographers, movie critics. If you if you go study that, um, I'm sure. Even if you know everything, at some point you can come back to a movie and just say, I just appreciate the experience of this story. And yeah, I, I appreciate the craft of it, but it's not bothering me. But in, initially, when you're first learning this, I'm sure that you, you, when you approach anything with a critical eye, especially an informed one, it probably precludes you from, at, at least for a, a time, from enjoying something. Without, without noticing the things that are maybe wrong with it or letting the fact that it is a fake story and you know this and you're kind of thinking about how it's being put together behind the scenes, letting that distract you. Yeah, is, is, if you can figure out how to do both, I think that's, that's the ultimate goal. But it definitely, it definitely adds to the appreciation too. If you know something is well done, you can spot if you, if you can spot what is poorly done, then you can spot what is well done as well. But I think ultimately it's the duality. I think that's what you're striving for. You want to know, you want the knowledge. You want to be able to say, yeah, okay, I know why this is good, but you want to be able to divorce yourself from analyzing it with your left brain and just appreciating it with your right brain. If you can simultaneously both do both of those things and not let them interfere with each other, I think that's what you want to strive to do. Like not just about films, but about anything. You want to be able to appreciate the merit of the intent and appreciate what is, has been accomplished with what the story is without tearing it apart and saying, here's, you know, here's everything that's right and wrong with it. You analyze something to death and just fail to appreciate, fail to just experience it. And I think that might be, I think it's the literalism actually that, uh, I don't know, I find that to be counterproductive to, yeah, to turn this to religion just for a second like i think that's what i don't like about both the new atheists and people who are fundamentalists like they they're both interpreting it very very literally one side is taking it as an absolute truth that must be adhered to and the other side is rejecting it as absolute truth but they're looking at it and saying i can criticize this and i i find no merit in it because if you just analyze it literally, it's it, it's very difficult to find it palatable from an ethical or moral perspective by current cultural moral standards. The moral context in which it was written historically is, is definitely at odds with ours now in light of current scientific understanding of the world. Uh, but, you know, again, I feel like it's just, you, you, I, you don't go into church and just stand up and yell. I'm not walking around looking for religious people, like, picking a fights. 
you know, I don't, uh, you know, I just, I, what do I appreciate? There are things about, I'm, I'm pretty hardline against religion for, I don't know, for, um, I don't, I don't align myself with the new atheists. Um, unless it is that I'm talking to somebody who is fundamentally religious, like I will go to the opposite extreme if I'm talking to somebody who is extreme the other way. Uh, that's just me being yin and yang, being a Gemini. Like I want to reintroduce balance to a conversation that I'm part of. But if it's just me standing alone, I'm closer to atheism in that I reject it as being any kind of truth, but I can still open the thing. I can still open up the gospels and read the words and appreciate the lessons in there, even not as literal truth. I can find, I can find the message as it applies to me. I touched upon this before and that, and that it's kind of like a Rorschach test. Um, I've been reading a lot of Carl Jung lately. And his point is that, uh, that Christ is basically the, the symbol uh, of the perfect man or the perfect human, if I want to make it uh, politically correct for this day and age. And so what it is, what the notion of Jesus is, uh, as the Christ figure, if you will, is kind of abstractly a blank canvas onto which you can project whatever you want. And, you know, it's, I, I used these examples before, but you can you can do one of two things. If you're informed about it and you've read the Gospels like I have, then you can pick the stories that resonate with you. Just cherry pick things like this is, yeah, I like this, I like that. And you can just throw those onto the canvas. Maybe fill out the details with your own. You just sort of define what this ideal is and you can move towards it. Strive towards it. This is the whole idea of Christianity. Like, like Jesus is the ideal and as a good Christian, you strive to be like him. So it, it tells you a lot about a person when they, when you ask them, okay, what, what are the stories in the Bible that resonate with you? Which ones do you like? Which ones do you privilege over all the others? That is a pretty good personality test. It tells you a lot about who a person is. Or if you're, you know, even if you're not well read, if you, if you don't know the stories in the Bible enough to pick the ones that you like, everybody kind of has a, a sense of, what Christianity is, maybe what it stands for, uh, you know, kind of how it occupies um, its place in our current cultural landscape. And it's still a blank canvas, even if you can't draw from scripture, you still just kind of say, okay, well, here's my impression of it, based on what I've heard, what I've gathered, just secondhand hearsay. You, you can say, well, here's the impression I have of Jesus. And that, that can still be uh, the representation of this is my ideal. This is how I regard the ideal. And again, I think that says something about a person. And it probably says something about you if you choose to reject it. This is, I'm sure, part of the reason that I reject it. Is I, I don't believe... I don't believe in platonic ideals. Um, this is the whole notion that Plato had, like that somewhere outside of our reality, you know, in some metaphysical plane, there is the perfect 
perfect circle or the perfect square, the perfect triangle. Like these things exist in our world, which is imperfect in imperfect forms. You cannot create a perfect shape of any kind. You, you can draw one as close as possible, but it's going to fall short somehow infinitesimally small down at the down at the to, to the very smallest detail there'll be an imperfection or if not a literal thing like a shape then an abstract concept like justice somewhere there's a there's a perfect representation of justice and this just manifests itself in the things actions ideas that are expressed in our world again imperfect they don't accurately um, represent the thing perfectly. They're imperfect, but they're they're meant. They're basically clones, or you know, they're um, instantiations, imperfect instantiations of of the ideal in our world. And I think that's that's the way people think about it. Jesus is the Platonic ideal for a human being, both in behavior, in belief. Yeah, faith or works, pick, pick, pick either or, or fuse them somehow. And once you have that, once you've defined that for yourself, then you know in what direction you should go. And so I'm sure it says something about me that I just reject the notion of an ideal. And I think that's pretty close to the truth. I certainly don't think you can never make society perfect. Like if you look at I think there's wisdom in that. Like you, you need some sort of end to strive for, but I think you need to understand that the end you're pushing for is not perfection. A lot of political discourse today seems to be around what well, the whole banter that you hear about uh, freedom of speech. This is an argument that goes back almost the the, the dawn of. Um, you know, civilization itself. It's been it's been argued about forever. Um, I think that the earliest argument was put forth in the English-speaking world by John Milton in his Arapagetica. Uh, but the, basically, the idea that you can't you can't bring about a political utopia just by shutting certain kinds of people up. If you just if certain kinds of people are not allowed to talk or if certain viewpoints are you exercise prior restraint and you don't let them be expressed, that that's going to eliminate the problems in the world. It, 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 fundamentally, I think that that creates more problems than it eliminates. But getting back to the, uh, you know, the overall point, it's not like you can achieve perfection. Like Salvador Dali said, don't be afraid of perfection because you're never going to achieve it. It's something to strive for, but you're not going to get there. You can't make things perfect. You look at the educational system in, in the United States. Lots of things you could say about that as, as criticism. Can you make it perfect? No. Can you make it better? Sure. Sure, you can kind of imagine what the ideal is and you can push things towards it. But that's all you can do. You can just roll the ball in one direction 
use your power to try and nudge things one way or the other. But the ideal can't be the end game. I think it can be a North Pole. It can be something that lets you... Yeah, it, it lets you determine how you navigate. If you, it's kind of... It guides a compass that you might have, but it cannot be where you're ultimately trying to get to. Yeah, that's what I would say. This whole notion of yeah, what is the ideal? It's meant to guide. And it's not meant to be an ultimate destination. And the notion of navigating is something I've been thinking about um, quite a lot lately. I've been trying to, to, to pick apart my own story. What is it that I've been we, we all live according to a story. We, we come up with a narrative for ourselves and we just sort of add to it over time. And that I think guides us. It's like, what uh, what is my next step? Okay, where does the story go next? What makes sense? What is consistent? And as, as a quick aside, I think that, I think that you have to be ready to accept non sequiturs in your life. I think to properly live, especially when you're young, you can't, you have to avoid submitting uh, to the sunk cost fallacy. That your story has been this or that up until this point in your life. Therefore, for consistency's sake, you must continue with that story. You have to accept that maybe there's a point at which you just completely go another way. It doesn't follow. It's inconsistent, but you have to say, you know, maybe I've been wrong this whole time. That's okay. That wasn't wasted time. Uh, the fact that I'm changing my direction now, the fact that I'm steering a different way, it doesn't mean that I've been navigating incorrectly this whole time. It doesn't mean that where I navigated to, even if I was navigating incorrectly, has been worthless. It just means it's time to tell the story. You have to be able to let go. That's that's very difficult for people to do. I think you you can spend your life devoted to something, and even even in your later years, it might be difficult to get away from it because, again, you just it's it's there, it's precedent. It's, it's your own private common law. You don't want to uh, get away from it because, I don't know, it's tricky. I try and mutate, you know, the precedent. But it's hard to overturn those things completely. And I think, I think it's absolutely necessary. Uh, but that's, th that's what I've been thinking about. What is my story? And uh, where am I now in it? And, and where should it be mutated? Um, yeah, one of, my, one of my favorite stories is that of the great Gatsby. Um, which I haven't even read since college. 
I just I just know the story and I know how it ends. I know ultimately who Jay Gatsby is. We we come to know who he is. We know what his story is. And we know why it's so tragic. And I think that's it's basically I think that's what everybody should look for. It's certainly what I've been looking for. I think the question is what is what is the green light for you? And I'm going to go ahead and spoil The Great Gatsby. If you haven't read it and you're listening to this, you should have read it by now. It seems like everybody in grade school is encouraged to read it or is made to read it. Uh, if not in high school, then in college. But essentially, there's this character of Jay Gatsby uh, just before the Jazz Age, I think he's in the Great War, uh, World War One, and he meets a girl, and she doesn't ultimately end up with him because he doesn't come from money. He's uh, he, he's not fabulously wealthy. It's a status thing socially. She can't really be with him. She has better options, you know. And so this this kind of sticks in his craw. He devotes himself to building a fortune, you know, uh, builds a mansion for himself and starts throwing these wild parties uh, during the Jazz Age, during the 1920s, when these parties were going on uh, and just inviting everyone in the town where he lives. And he knows that this this woman from his past, she's often married somewhere, but she's in this community. And so he thinks just it's just a matter of time before word gets out and eventually she's going to show up at one of his parties. And it can be like, oh, look what just happened to happen. You're here now. And he's going to engineer the circumstances that will allow him to have a second chance at this. And of course, unfortunately, the story goes that he succeeds. He does get what he wants, but it, it doesn't end well for really anyone in the story. Um, yeah, and that's, that's, the, that's the final point. You can get kind of the emotional point of the story, uh, just sort of, a, I guess, a, a warning against the dangers of nostalgia and chasing it too quickly, too closely. For too long with such intensity just that that is the green light you can live your life for too long like that just you're navigating you're walking but it's like you are walking backwards into the future you've got your eye focused on something behind you you don't know where you're headed you can only see where you currently are kind of out of the peripheral uh, your peripheral vision only after you've passed the things. So you, you're never really clear where you're headed and you're only after the fact you figure out how the whole thing fits together. It's like you, you can, you can forget living. You, you can, basically you don't end up living if you live like that. You never experience the present, just constantly focused on a target that's behind you. Okay, I think I've made that point.
I like to overmake points. Honestly, I do like, I do try and make points that are somewhat trite, but I try and spell them out in some way that may be, I don't know, I use an analogy that might be interesting, but I'm striving for clarity instead of depth. Um, a simple, a simple expression that's easy to embrace instead of something that is more obscure. There was an episode of uh, Rick and Morty in the most recent season where it, it, it's the exact opposite problem. Uh, there's a kind of crystal that you can touch and it will show you your future, just how the rest of your life plays out. And in the story, Morty gets a hold of one of these and he sees how he's going to die. So eventually he comes across, it's constantly changing as he's going through his life. And eventually he finds an end game that he likes. Like, if, oh, if I die this way, that must mean I, I did something right. So he just very carefully goes about living his life so that that ultimate fantasy, that end game, doesn't change. He's just trying to engineer that one thing. And it's, it's the exact same point in reverse. If you're too obsessed with how you're going to die, uh, then you, you forget how to live. Very, very, very sort of, sort of clever. But I think people can succumb to both of these. You can be too afraid of the future and too, I don't know, too, you can long for the past. You can do either of those things too intensely to the exclusion of just living in the present moment and just living your life properly, figuring out where you're going. You can look at those things. They can, they can kind of be beacons. You can reference them. Where have I been? Learn from it. Where am I going? Okay. How does that inform the present? But you can't use either one as this is where I'm headed. It, it can't be. Neither one of those can be the ideal that you're trying to move into. And I think this is the danger. Uh, speaking of movies that no one liked, but that I liked. I, I, there's one that I, I saw in, I think, 2005. It's a movie called The Butterfly Effect. I think a horror movie uh, starring uh, Ashton Kutcher. And I, th I think it's Amy Smart is her name, the actress. But it, it's it's essentially about a guy who he has a lot of blackouts in his memory. There are periods he can't remember, and he he's been journaling his entire life. And he learns that if he reads these journals, he can go back and basically live in the areas of his memory that are blacked out. He can, he's basically back in his old self and he has autonomy over what happens. He can act in a certain way, however he wants. And he learns quickly that if he, if he does that and if he acts differently than he did when the past actually happened, that he will change the course of history. Like the timeline of his life will shift. Whatever he does, that will be the future that he returns to after he's done with the vision. 
And I, this is this was this was a, a, not a good movie. There are definitely things about it that are off-putting. There are things about it that don't make sense. Uh, it was reasonably well acted. I think the idea is certainly sound. It's just some something about it did not work. And I think it was it was quite dark too. Um, I happen to. It doesn't bother me when something is dark. There, there's there's some things I watch that just give you an icky feeling. You kind of like that. Oh, that really bothers me. Some things I start watching, I just have to turn off. I can't, I can't get through them. But there's not many things like that for me. I'm actually able to stomach a lot of disturbing stuff. I, I definitely draw the line at torture porn, though. I, I don't, I don't know who enjoys hostile, that sort of thing. But, you know, I like this, I liked this movie, like aesthetically the effect it had on me, the sort of catharsis you feel after the last scene roll, you know, you see the last scene, the credits roll, and you're just like, okay, I know how I feel now. Maybe I don't know why, but it's, I just went into this park and played and I had a good day. Now I'll go back here again. And I think it's because that this was 15 years ago when I saw it, but I think there was something to that. This whole, of course, the end of the film is the character realizes, okay, I'm just going to destroy my notebooks. Like he keeps going back, changing the past, and it alters the future in a way that he can't predict. It just keeps screwing things up. So eventually when he settles on a, on a alternate future, which is good enough, you know, he's, nobody in his life is, you know, uh, in a bad place. He's okay himself. He just says, okay, that's enough. I'm going to stop messing with the past and just, you know, move forward. I don't think it was that, that thought. That was the reason the movie kind of, I don't know, it was both cathartic and sort of unsettling. Something about it just grabbed my attention. My brain was like focused on it. And I think it may have been because on some level I knew that I was maybe a little bit too preoccupied with the journals from my past. A little bit too focused on those and maybe that's what you're seeing on screen all of these um it's not so much that you you can screw up your uh present by altering the past just if you're so focused on the past you can screw up your future by not focusing on the present i think that was the sort of unsettling feeling i had kind of what fascinated me about it and again not a good movie but that's kind of the whole point it's it's just there are some pieces of art that you see and you like them and it really doesn't matter whether anybody else likes them i think everything has merit even if it's poorly made there's generally an intention like there's an overall point to be made the director had some intent the screenwriter had some intent even with poor execution there's generally something that will resonate with at least one other person. We're not all that different from each other.
So yeah, as long as you don't bankrupt yourself, go make as many films as you want, write all the books you want, like come up with stories, just make art. For some reason, humans criticize it. But yeah, that's not the point. Yeah, the point is not accolades. Although I have to say accolades are nice and whatever the opposite of accolades are, yeah, it's painful. Another one, and I, I, I certainly don't have to talk about this too much because I have written about it a few different places now. I've made the same overall point, but it was um, uh, It Chapter 2, the, the second movie about... Um, the evil clown monster that terrorizes uh on the first film it terrorizes some kids and they have to fight it the second film is they have to come back as adults because it has re-emerged uh and started eating kids again they have to go back and fight it uh this is definitely not a good movie people loved the first one which came out uh, two or three years ago. Uh, people, this was actually, this went on to become the highest grossing horror film of all time. And the first one definitely plays like a season of Stranger Things. It's, it's kind of like there's a bunch of kids who have to fight the monster. And the adults are just not aware of it. You know, the adults are so locked in their rational world. They're not aware that there's anything funny going on. So the kids have to take it upon themselves to... We love those stories. We keep writing that story where the kids the kids know, but the adults just have no clue. Those stories definitely appeal to kids. I'm not sure why they appeal to adults. I guess so we can remember. We can remember that the, the idea that we were just, we knew more about the world as children. There were things we could see then that we can't see now. But of course, that the fact that the first one was so successful set up some very, very high expectations for what the sequel would be, and I don't think it met those for most people. Um, not only because it didn't live up to the first film, objectively, I, I don't think it did. But just on its own, I don't think it, it was a very well-made movie. There's definitely plenty of plot holes in it that you really don't even have to squint to see. They're just, they're just there. So I, I wouldn't say it's a good movie. I wouldn't say it's, it's, you, I wouldn't say you usually go see it unless it's maybe your cup of tea anyway, that genre, that style of movie. And if you like the first one, I, I, I certainly wouldn't say go see the sequel with a hope that you're seeing part two of that. You're not. It's something quite a bit different. But I ended up seeing this movie in the theater like 10 times. I kept going back to see it. And it was just, I went to see it the first night and the credits rolled. And it's just, there was some, I left the theater with a peace of mind. I just, I just left, I, it, the theater emptied out into Yerba Buena Park. Uh, I just 
you know, I was walking along the, the big fountain that's in there. It was, it was very late at night on a Friday. And I just felt peaceful. There'd been all this psychological turmoil in my life. And I was just suddenly, in that moment, it was gone. And uh, I kept, I know I clung to that for a little bit. Of course, it didn't last for very long. I went back to see it a second time. Like, I think the very next Friday, I went back and it, it had the same exact effect. And so I just kept going back. The fact that it would just bring me to this peaceful place, this place of like resolution, just going to sit and watch this thing. Uh, like, why would you not chase that feeling? So I just, I just kept going back. And then eventually it was out of the theater. Like there was nowhere it was playing. And towards the end, I had to like learn how to use public transport in the Bay Area. I had to get on the BART and go to South San Francisco because it was the only place you could go watch it. Then it became the East Bay. I had to take the BART over across the San Francisco Bay into like Oakland and watch it there. But eventually it just became, it, it wasn't available anywhere. As soon as it was gone from the theater, the last night I saw it was Halloween. Uh, but after it was pulled from the theaters, there was like a three week period when I couldn't see it in the theater and it wasn't available on DVD or like you couldn't buy it digitally. And at that point I just bought the soundtrack and listened to the soundtrack a whole bunch. And that pretty much had the same effect. I could just imagine the story in my head, the music reinforcing it. I've always done that. I've always loved movie soundtracks for just that reason. If there's a movie you really love and the score is well done, the score itself can put you there if you just listen to it. Um, so I did that. And of course I bought it when it came out and I've, I don't know how many times I have watched it at home. If my neighbors can hear me through the wall, they have to be sick of hearing me play like certain scenes from that movie over and over again, if not the whole movie itself. But yeah, it's just, I think, not to delve too deep, but I think the clown is just, in the second film, it personifies childhood trauma. You know, whatever your personal demons are, whatever's bothering you, whatever's holding you back in life, and just seeing the characters defeat that. I don't, it just worked for me. Uh, seeing like, you know, their, their insecurities and their anxieties personified and they defeat them. It felt, uh, I don't know, seeing that just felt gratifying. You know, it was, it was enough to draw me to it despite all the film's other glaring, you know, problems. And the film is pretty well made. I can see what the director, what the, the screenwriter, it's put together well, even if it doesn't work for everyone. It was, it's not a, it's not a bad film. It's just, it's not one you should go into with high expectations. It's not a Coen Brothers movie. It's a summer, summer blockbuster movie. You, you go see it and, you know, it's a ride. It's basically like a ride. That, that's the way I thought of the first one. The first film felt like a, like a haunted house ride you would go into at a, you know, a theme park. And as long as you're not looking at it, as long as you're not looking around, like 
for the cracks. You know, I can see where this has been painted. What I'm looking at is just something that some guy, you know, uh, just put together. And then they turn the lights out and, you know, throw a car through it. As long as you're not trying to figure out how to see beyond the illusion, just embrace the illusion, then it's, it's a fun ride. I'd say that's true of both of them. Anyway, it worked for me, despite how good it may or may not be. And I think that's, yeah, in the end, isn't that what matters? We just have to figure out what our own ideals are. What is our story? Figure out how to tell it. I'm just borrowing elements from other stories to figure out how, how they reflect our own. Anyway, I think I'm going to cut this one off now. The, the last one of these things that I recorded uh, a couple of days ago ended up being three hours long. I've actually been surprised how long I can just sit here and talk at length and just sort of bounce around between different ideas, how long I can do that without my voice giving out and um, without running out of stuff to say. Uh, yeah. Um, very surprised. I don't know. I think I, t I took the inspiration for this from Bill Burr's podcast. Um, because he just sort of like, he does exactly what I'm doing here. He just turns on a recording device. He's got his equipment and he's just sort of talking to the audience, but to himself. And he does like the Jim Gaffigan thing. Jim Gaffigan has that, that voice he does like, oh no, he's not going to talk about this now, is he? He's basically like mimicking what he, what he anticipates to be in the audience's head. So we can kind of stand up there and have a conversation with, he says something and then he like mimics the audience reaction. Uh, Bill Burr does the same thing where it's just like he, he'll, he'll make a point and then he'll like hold the microphone away from him and like yell. Like that's like what he's yelling very distantly is supposed to like be what the audience might be thinking. That's the objection. Then he, he addresses the objection. Like you kind of, you kind of have this conversation with yourself. Anyway, yeah, most podcasts I've, I've I listen to are conversations. There, there's a host, and everything seems to cir circle around the host. But it, it tends to be giving uh, the spotlight, a significant portion of it, to the guest on any given week. Um, I like that format a lot better. I don't think there's a whole lot of people that I would tune into a podcast and just listen to them talk to themselves for or really any length of time. I don't know who you want to hear monologue. I certainly don't think anyone is listening to me monologue, but I am enjoying doing it. It is keeping me sane during this crisis, and isn't that the whole point during this coronavirus pandemic? It's just getting by, just making the best of it all. And I hope wherever you are, you're doing the same. I hope you're healthy. I hope your family's healthy. I hope you're uh, talking to them regularly. I hope you're... Uh, enjoying yourself, you're finding ways to cope much the way I am. We're going to get through this.
It's going to be fine. I think. We don't know. So I guess if you're going to, you're going to believe one thing or the other without certainty, you might as well believe it's going to be, this is the, this is the time to enlist optimism. No reason not to. So yeah, hope you're doing well. Hope you continue to do well. Uh, this has been great. This is Jim signing off. Cheers.